0: If you'll turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, this Lord's Day we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12, looking at Paul's word to the church there, uh, speaking to the Thessalonians. You can look at his first letter and second letter and you can compare them and see how some of the things he prayed for and encouraged them in in the first letter we see coming to fruition in the second, uh, specifically in this area of, of resolve, of being resolute. So we'll look at that today some to read for us uh, these verses and then pray for our time in God's word beginning in verse 3 this is what paul writes under the inspiration of the holy spirit we ought always to give thanks to god for you brothers as is right because of your faith it's growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of god for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, And flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our time in God's Word this Lord's Day. Sovereign God, we do come before you today and ask that you would... Uh, bless our time of worship, our time of of learning as we look at Your Word, that You would encourage us, that You would grow us, that You would help us to understand these words. Father, so many of us, uh, this time of year, we come up with a list of things that we're going to seek to accomplish in the coming year. And many times, Lord, those lifts can be quite self-centered, quite self-focused. Lord, I pray that as we consider the coming year today, that You might put things on our heart. Resolutions, co- commitments that we may need to make in light of this passage, in light of your word, perhaps very different than the typical resolution we've made before. And We pray for these things now in Christ's name, Amen. Well, the days are are winding down for this year; just a couple of days left, and then we'll come to January one. And as I've mentioned, that's a time where, for so many of us, we we come to this. Familiar time of making resolutions, it's, it's something that is very familiar to most of us. It's something that goes back centuries, in fact, as you look throughout different civilizations and cultures. Uh, the Romans, for example, uh, they worshipped among many of their false gods, the god Janus. They believed that the god Janus was the god of transitions and new beginnings. He, he was depicted with two faces. One facing the future, one facing the past, oftentimes uh, his figure would be on the doorpost on entrances marking the beginning, the entrance, a transition. In fact, uh, as you look at our calendar, the Romans named the first month of our calendar January after Janus, the the beginning and part of their practice was to, to make commitments to Janus in the coming year of things they wanted to accomplish in the coming year that he might bless those things Uh, even before them the babylonians had the practice of promising to their gods each year that they would return anything borrowed that they would repay anyone that they owed they would make these commitments at the beginning of the year you can look at many civilizations you could see this practice of making resolve making resolutions you can see it among our culture today although it has changed some over the years Uh, One historian looked just over the last century at how our resolutions have changed. He found that at the end of the 19th century, in America your typical resolution had to do with how someone could help other people. Most people's resolve was that they were going to be a better neighbor, that they were going to help other people more, that they were going to do something to improve the lives of others in the coming year. Looking at that same demographic a century later, more recently, the end of the 20th century, he found that the resolutions had changed from helping others, focusing on others, to focusing on ourselves. And so now our resolutions are more common to be things about us, uh, how we are going to improve ourselves in the coming year, how we're going to improve our, our financial situation, or improve our, our physical health, things we're going to do to improve our life. Of course, there's then the issue of how unsuccessful usually our resolutions are for any of you who still have that automatic draft coming out of your checking account for the local gym that you don't go to anymore uh, you know that many times the things we resolve to do in january we don't quite follow through on Uh, one study found that only that that as many as 88 percent of the resolutions that we set fail they did find that there's two things however that make it less likely to fail, two things that that increase the success rate of people making resolutions. Uh, The first issue was when they had people who had accountability, when they shared their resolutions with others, when they had others perhaps who were making the same resolutions, they had much more success. They also found that people who made specific goals rather than more ambiguous goals were more successful. So for example, a person who said they were going to lose a pound a week versus a person who was just going to lose weight. But, but by and far, most of the time, these, these resolutions we make, these ideas of improving ourselves, oftentimes we, we fail in them. And yet, I, I do think there's a redemptive nature to resolutions. I do think that as Christians, that there's something to look at in this idea of being resolute of making commitments of things that we want to seek in the power of the Holy Spirit to do. And I think God has used this in the lives of many in the life of the church. The one that I've shared about before was Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a great theologian and pastor. God used him greatly during the first great awakening and One of the things he did at the age of 19 was sat down and and made a list of resolutions. And that year he came up with 70 resolutions. These were things that he didn't just look at on January 1st. These were things he looked at every single week to to remind him to stay on task. Among his resolutions were some of these. Number 7 on his list. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do, if it were the last hour of my life. Number ten, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Number twenty-eight, resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Edwards' resolutions were to to grow in his knowledge of God's Word, to consider his pain and afflictions in light of the great glory of God and the pain of martyrdom and of hell, things that God had not brought on him. I want us to consider as we come into these coming days, as we think about resolutions, resolutions more along the lines of Edwards and less along the lines of our culture, and to do that in light of the Scripture. Uh, The passage we looked at this morning, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he's commending them on their faith, and specifically in verses 11 and 12, he talks about their resolve. He says that he prays for them, that God would make them worthy of His calling, that He would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, all these things for the glory of Christ. And so this morning, I want to encourage us, church, to, to, to resolve to do things in light of the Scripture, to make resolutions in light of this passage. And so, we're going to look specifically at three resolves that we might have following along with the Scripture, in light of the Scripture, in the coming year. The first one is this, number one, that we might resolve to grow in our faith, that you might resolve to grow in your faith. In verses 3 and 4, Paul, along with his companions here, speaking to the third church in Thessalonica, he he commends them because their faith is growing abundantly. Uh, in the Greek, that that two words "growing abundantly" is really one word. It's one term that that indicates excessive growth, abundant growth, intense growth, almost a sense of unexpected growth. The sense here is that they have exceeded his expectations. Uh, if you read Paul's first letter to the church there you find that he is praying that their faith might increase he's he's praying that they might endure suffering for the sake of christ now he's looking at them and saying your your faith has grown abundantly Uh, it has exceeded all expectations you are growing in your faith and the question that might come to our mind is how how do you measure that you think about your life if your resolution in the coming year is i want to grow in my faith well How do you measure that growth? How do you measure where you're at on that scale of faith? Well, the Scripture often talks to us about fruits. Fruits of the Christian life. Fruits of repentance. Fruits of faith. And I think there's two fruits of the faith of the Thessalonians that you see mentioned here in this passage. The first one we see in verse 3 there. It's the love they have for one another. Paul commends them on the love that every one of them has for one another. How that love is increasing their their love for one another is increasing you may have heard other pastors share before about how in the greek language there's different words used for love to to help you understand what what kind of love is being referred to the word used here is the word agape Uh, agape is a benevolent love it's a it's a goodwill love when it's used of god it refers to the love god has where he gives love and he loves in such a way that is needed but perhaps not the way that's desired. So for example, John 3.16, God so loved, God agape, that's the word used there, He so loved the world that He... Think about how you would feel in that sentence. This morning. How would you fill that in? God so loved the world that He cured my cancer. God so loved the world that He gave me a job. God so loved the world that He took care of the strife and conflict in my marriage. You Think of how we would fill in that sentence. The things that we desire, that we perceive we need. And yet, what is our ultimate need? More than a job, more than finances, more than a better marriage. Our need is for salvation in Christ. And so what is it God gave us? God loves the world so much that He gave His one and only Son. His agape love for us was that He provided for us exactly what we needed, even if it's not what we desired. That's the type of love that Paul is saying here that the Thessalonians have for one another. That type of love is growing for one another. So think about that. How how does that love become evident in the church How do we in Bloomfield Baptist Church love each other in a way where we we love one another exactly as God shows us we need to love one another, maybe not the way that we want to be loved? You see this many places in the Scripture, this word used. I want to point out one today that I think applies to how we can then grow in this area. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4.15. I'll read it for you. Ephesians 4.15, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Rather, speaking the truth in love, in agape, same Greek word, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says the way for the church to grow, the way we are to love one another, is to speak the truth in love think about that for a moment. To speak the truth in love. Some of us feel like we're pretty good at speaking truth, maybe not so good at the love part. And really, some of us are just more critical than we are truthful. Sometimes we pride ourselves in pointing out the faults of others. And, well, I'm just being honest. No, we're we're just being critical. Our goal is not to build up. Our goal is to tear down. Far more of us, I think, seek to be loving, and we abandon the truth. We, we think we want to help each other. We just want to love one another. And so we look past faults. We look past sin. We don't confront people on sin because we don't want to offend. We don't want to judge. We just want to love. That's what the church is supposed to be, isn't it? Love. And we abandon the fact that we need to speak the truth in love. Paul here is giving us a model for the church. We are to speak the truth to one another in love. A truth that perhaps others don't want to hear at times. Now think about the issue of needing to confront a brother or sister in Christ in sin. I've had many times throughout ministry over the last two decades where I've had to sit down with a dear brother or sister in Christ and I've had to call them out on sin and I've had to say to them. You're, you're in sin. This is dangerous. You need to repent. You need to turn. And more often than not, that was not... A welcome message. That was not what they wanted to hear. That's not the kind of love they wanted in that moment. And yet, that's exactly the kind of love they needed. And for those who turned and repented, some were later able to come back and and, and thank me and thank others for confronting them. We, church, need to love one another in such a way that we're willing to call one another out on sin. Not in a critical, judgmental way any more than we need to look past sin and say, oh, it's all okay. We need to lovingly sit down with one another and call each other one another out in sin. Paul says this is evidence of a growing faith. He also says in verse 4 that their, their steadfastness and their faith in all persecutions and in all afflictions that they're enduring, that's evidence of their growing faith. That in the midst of trial and of persecution, their faith is growing. There's evidence of growth in their faith. Why? Because they're remaining steadfast. Again, consider this for a moment. Paul is saying, you're enduring persecution, you're enduring hardship, you're enduring affliction, and you're remaining steadfast. Now think about that in light of people you know who don't come to this church or any church now. Who've stopped completely talking about God, talking about church, who in a sense have turned their back and walked away. And when someone talks to them about it, they say something along the lines of, well, yeah, I, I did that once, and I was there once. But then this happened. And this pain, that this hardship, this affliction, it broke the deal for them. It's not what they expected. It's not what they believe they deserved. So they walked away. I believe this happens so often today because there's a great plague among churches that has swept particularly... Our nation, and particularly the West, and this, this whole concept known as the, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. And essentially, it plays out like this that if you have enough faith, then God will fill in the blank. You don't like the relationship you're in? You want a better one? You just have to trust God. You don't like your financial situation? You just need to pray in faith and God will give you what you ask. That, that cancer, that sickness, perhaps it's there because your faith is lacking. If you truly have enough faith, God will remove it and He will reward you. If you haven't seen this, you just need to open up your eyes. Turn on most religious broadcasting on the television, walking to most Christian bookstores, and it's there. and It's usually covered with a, a, a title like how it's going to improve your life, how your life can be better, how you can overcome and deal with, with battlefields. It talks about things that sound good, about how God wants good things for you. But when you read into it, when you look into it, you see what's completely and totally absent is the concept of how do you deal with suffering and pain. What you see that's absent is anything in regards to this passage we've looked at this Lord's Day in Second Thessalonians where Paul here speaks of a people who are in the midst of persecution and suffering and pain. This does not reconcile with a prosperity gospel, and a prosperity gospel does not reconcile with what God's Word says. But because that's a plague that's come in the church and we've not stood up against it, I fear that many have left our churches. Why? Because they bought into a false gospel. Because they bought into a notion that if they tried hard enough, if they had enough faith, their child was going to get better. Their loved one wasn't going to die. They weren't going to lose whatever it is they ended up losing. We need to be resolved to return to what God's Word teaches. And what we see here is that it teaches trial and suffering are things that will come. And in the midst of them, we need to remain steadfast. Let me give you just one example of what God's Word tells us about such trials. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What does God's Word say here? It says, don't be surprised. When the bottom falls out, don't stand there and say, I, didn't, I don't know, why, why would this happen to me? I don't understand. This is so strange. God's Word says, don't do that. Why? It's going to happen. Trials, suffering, persecutions, they're going to come for all of us. It says, don't be surprised. Don't act like it's something strange, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We see here, as well as in 2 Thessalonians, suffering is in the frame of the return of Christ. One day the glory is revealed and the suffering's gone. Your suffering for those in Christ is temporary. We are looked towards a coming kingdom to deal with our suffering now. To do these things, we need to have a resolve. We need to resolve not to waste our suffering. See, in the coming year, chances are that somebody in this room here today is going to suffer greatly. And chances are that Some of you won't be here next January, next February, the end of next year. Perhaps you'll have walked away from the church. Perhaps for other, you won't be alive anymore because suffering will come. Cancers will come. Death will come. These things will happen. They do happen. Don't be surprised when they do. Be ready when they do. And don't waste it. God has a purpose for it. I'm not trying to put a smiley face on it. I'm trying to say, look to what God's Word says. God here is revealing in His Word through Paul writing to this church that there's a, there's a purpose in suffering. God has a plan for it. C.S. Lewis made a, wrote a great book on this topic. I commend to you. It's called The Problem of Pain, where he deals with this issue of pain and suffering. Let me read to you, though, just one sentence from it. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience but He shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God has a purpose for our suffering. Resolve to look for that purpose. Number two, resolve to live in light of, God's, or of the Lord's return. Resolve to live in light of the Lord's return. Paul goes on after commending the Thessalonians for their great growing faith in the midst of suffering their love for one another. He then talks about the judgment that's coming at Christ's coming. He's talking then about living in light of the Lord's return. I want to point out just two aspects of this. Paul talks here about how they will suffer, but consider it a blessing because one day those who are afflicting them will be the ones being afflicted. And those who are being afflicted now will one day be relieved. There's two aspects of this. One is for the follower of Christ. Understand your suffering is temporary. That may not come as ultimate comfort right now for those of you who are suffering, but in light of Scripture, understand it is for a moment and a glimpse in light of the great glory that is to come. That is a reminder that we need often. Revelation 21, the day that the Scripture speaks of where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more crying, no more tears, no more cancers, no more doctors' reports we don't want to see. It's all gone It's temporary. Christian, rejoice in that. But also be mindful. Because for some, suffering will get worse and it will be eternal. That's the other side of this. For the Christian, we rejoice because suffering is temporal. But we need to be mindful. For the non-Christian, judgment is coming. And notice what Paul says here. He talks about this judgment coming, verse 8. In flaming fire. Christ is coming, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There, there's two groups being talked about here. There's the ones who they don't obey the gospel. They've, they've had the opportunity, perhaps, they've heard the gospel and they've rejected the gospel and they will be under the wrath of God as a result. But he also just says plainly, those who don't know God. It says, plainly, there are those among our world today who have never heard the gospel, who don't have a church in their community, who don't have a Bible in their language, and yet they are accountable before a holy God for their sin, and they will endure the wrath and judgment of God. And yet we want to pretend that they are okay. That somehow there's a clause we don't see here that says, well, they're going to be okay. And yet God's word is very vivid in this picture that no, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is a word to us about our resolve that we need to be resolved to to reach lost people. That we need to be resolved, we need to be burdened to share the gospel with lost people. You want to resolve a resolution for 2013, make that it. That, that, that God might use you to share the gospel with someone who is lost and is on their way to hell. And if you don't know how to share with them, then learn how to share with them. Don't sit around and wait and pretend like everything's okay. We're going to be offering a number of training opportunities here in the coming year. One, out of the burden that we are sending people on mission trips at times who perhaps don't know how to share the gospel. And so... To go on a mission trip in the coming year, you have to go through evangelism training now in our church. But we're going to offer this to the church as a whole. We want everyone here to have the opportunity to learn how to sit down and share the gospel with someone. Please resolve to learn. Early in Sandy ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ, we met a student named David at Western Kentucky University. David was a, a young Christian and what stood out to me about David was soon after becoming a Christian, he was burdened, burdened for his best friend Bryce who was lost. David and Bryce were involved in all kinds of things together. They had done a lot of drugs together. They had dealt drugs together. David had radically come to know the Lord. He had stepped out of this and yet Bryce was still in all that and so he knew Bryce was just on a road leading to destruction. He prayed for him and he showed up at a training that was offered by our ministry we were part of there at western's campus and he came because he said i heard you teach people how to share the gospel and i need to know how to share the gospel because i have a friend i need to share with and so he sat there and diligently studied and learned and little did he know that while he was learning how to share the gospel that that his best friend bryce was out in the darkness on his knees one night praying to god something along the lines of this god if you exist Show me. Because I'm ready to end my life now. So show me something that helps me to see life is worth living. Because if not, I'm tired of it and I'm ending it. Little did he know that God... And his providence was bringing these things together because as Bryce prayed that prayer, God would answer that prayer through his friend David coming back from one of those trainings, sitting down with him and sharing with him through the Scripture the message of God's love and forgiveness and the need to repent and have faith. And through that, Bryce gave his life to Christ. And now almost two decades later, he's walking with the Lord. He's an elder in a church there in Bowling Green, growing in his faith abundantly. God used one who is burdened to share the Gospel to learn how. Friend, please, please don't use ignorance as an excuse. Learn how to share the Gospel with someone. Resolve to share the Gospel with someone. Remember that we live among so many who are lost. Again, as a reminder, 6.93 billion people in the world, 2.89 billion have little to no access to the Gospel. We need to go. We need to give that others might go. To reach those billions. Christ will return. And we glory in this. But We also remember in this. So many that are lost. Number three. And last. Resolve to glorify King Jesus. Paul ends this first chapter in 2 Thessalonians. We read these two verses. Where he talks about how he prays. God might make them worthy of His calling, might fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith in His power. Why? So that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in them. And they in Him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, The fruition of all this, the goal of all of this, is that the Thessalonians might bring glory to the name of Jesus. Think about your resolve and your commitments. Who are they bringing glory to? Who who do you glorify through your work, through your family, through your finances? Whose name are you building up? The Scripture doesn't call us to build up our own name. Scripture certainly doesn't call us to build up the name of this or any other church. Church. Scripture calls us to build up the name of Christ Jesus and the church of Christ Jesus. It is Him who is to be glorified in a great measure for your resolve, for your resolutions as you think about the coming year. is—is is Are these resolutions going to bring glory to you? Or are they going to ultimately glorify Christ Jesus? Who are you going to live for this coming year and every year? mentioned before, mentioned today about our ministry with Campus Crusade. I'm very thankful how God used that ministry in my life, in Sandy's life. It's how I came to know the Lord as a freshman at North Carolina State University. The ministry was started in 1951 by a man named Bill Bright, who's since gone home to be with the Lord. And soon after starting that ministry on the campus of UCLA, Dr. Bright began to get a number of requests, a number of questions, and many times he found these questions had a similar theme. He's ministering to college students and so often those question was something like what what should i do with my life who should i marry what should i do with my career how, how do i make decisions how how do i know god's will so over the years he wrote a, a letter to a fictitious person to kind of answer all these questions it was called the paul brown letter and in writing to paul brown he was basically responding to how, how do we make biblically informed decisions how, how do we know god's will how do we make decisions and God would use that throughout the decades. He would use it in my own life. as Decades later, as a freshman there at NC State, as I was wrestling with some of these same questions, one of the staff members of Campus Crusade for Christ gave me a copy of this Paul Brown letter, and I remember reading it, and essentially as I read it, this is what it came down to. Was it going to live my life for my glory? Was going to live it for the glory of Christ? Dr. Brighton, that letter, encouraged Paul Brown to to list out the decision before him and to look at it in light of the Scripture. In light of what does the Scripture call us to do? The Scripture calls us to live for the glory of Christ. The Scripture calls us to make disciples of the nations. And to look at that decision in light of the Scripture and and which decision would allow this man, Paul Brown, to, to best make disciples and best glorify the name of Christ. To make decisions in light of the Scripture. Revolutionary concept, you would think. Because soft often we don't do it. So often we make decisions based on our desires, based on our checkbook, based on our culture. Church, I want to encourage you in this coming year to make decisions based on God's Word and based on glorifying Christ. And if you and I take that seriously, it may mean major changes for us. It may mean radical changes for us. But it may indeed mean that we will grow abundantly in our faith. That we will live more in light of Christ's return than in light of our desires and our daily culture and what it says. That we might live to glorify Christ and not ourselves. That's my prayer for us and our church, for me and my family, for you and yours. I ask you to pray that with me in this coming year. If you would stand now and pray with me as we come to a time of response. Father, I thank you for your Word and how it graciously, very vividly points to our sin and our need for repentance, how we see in this passage, Lord, the need to live in light of the glory of Christ. And Lord, I ask right now that you would convict our hearts that You would burden us with the need to repent of our selfish and self-centered living, of resolutions that so often focus on the bottom line for us. And pray, Lord, that we might resolve in this coming year to live for the glory of Christ, to share the Gospel with lost people in our life, friends, family members, loved ones, co-workers, neighbors. That we might resolve to take the gospel to the nations. Lord, for some in this room who may be considering it, I I pray, God, that You would burden them and call them to to go to the world with the gospel. Lord, for others, that You would burden us to give the resources so that they might go. Lord, that we would be a giver, that we would be goers. Father, help our resolves to be made in light of Your Word not just in light of our culture and our desires. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.